This morning we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 12. To really get the context of Romans chapter 12, we have to back up into Romans chapter 11. And pick up a few verses there, beginning in Romans 11, verse 33. And I'll go ahead and read to you from the New American Standard uh, 2020 edition. It says, Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it would be paid back to him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory of forever. Amen. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And Father, we ask that you would speak to our hearts concerning this incredible passage that we have before us this morning. That you would help us to hear that which the Spirit would say to each of us. We thank you, Lord, for this incredible book, this incredible love letter that you have given to each of us. We pray, Lord, that we would have open hearts before you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Actually, one's water, so I'm only drinking one cup of coffee, not two, so... I've really been looking forward to teaching this particular verse, and then I, I just sat down um, and just did word studies on it and just looked at the words, particularly the verbs, and, and to see what they were talking about. And, and what's fascinating to me is that, that the word therefore, when you read the word therefore, you have to ask the question, what is it therefore? What is it referring to? And it really... It really refers to everything that Paul has written prior to chapter 12. And uh, so if you'll turn to Romans chapter 1 verse, no, I'm kidding, we won't go back that far. But, but uh, really, this is an incredible book. Um, and he really is referring to that which he ended chapter 8 with. At least that's how I look at this. And he makes this incredibly bold statement in chapter 8 that says nothing can separate us from the love of God to those of us who are in Christ Jesus. And, and Paul in this particular letter, 
And by, by the way, if, if it's kind of dark, Bill, could we just go ahead and turn that on? I forgot to do that. Thank you very much. Uh, that might be a little lighter in here, or maybe, maybe it's too, anyway, didn't make a bit of difference, did it? Anyway. Wow. Um, well, you know the, uh, you know the best way to stay awake during a sermon is? Be the one giving it. So come on up, brother. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> I'll go sit in your spot. Okay, where was I? Um, so um, you have this incredible statement that nothing can separate us from the love of God uh, for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 8, verse 39. And in his writings, he's anticipating arguments. And he's getting out in front of the arguments. And one of the arguments he anticipated that he really covered in Romans 9, 10, and 11 was if nothing can separate us from the love of God, then what about the Jews? And have they been rejected because they have not received the Messiah? They, they, they did not enter into receiving the Messiah. They did not believe. They did not have faith. They did not trust that Jesus was the, their Messiah sent to them. And so he deals with this question in Romans 9, 10, and 11. And, and really kind of capping it off, in, in Romans 11, where he talks about this idea where the Gentiles were given the gospel uh, so that the Jews would see it and become what? Remember? They would become jealous. And this idea of this provoking of jealousy would cause some or even more to, to really begin to reflect on what was going on inside of them in, internally and realize that they needed a Messiah, that they needed their Messiah who had come. And that was Jesus Christ. And so Paul's, Paul's seeing that the more Gentiles that get saved, the more jealousy will be provoked to the Jews, and the more or the greater the possibility will be that the Jews will get saved. And he is just elated by that idea because he has such a heart for his countrymen. And, and so at the end of this incredible theological teaching, he breaks into this expression of worship in chapter 11, verse 33, which we looked at last week, where he says, Oh, the depths and the riches and both the wisdom and the knowledge of God and how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. And goes on to say in verse 36, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Therefore, now, remember that the chapters and the verse divisions are not divinely inspired. So this thought is, is he's, it, some commentators and Bible teachers like to say the verse 12 or chapter 12, he's beginning a new thought. I don't think so. I think he's continuing on in this, this expression of worship known as a doxology that, that he picked up on verse uh, 33 of chapter 11. Which is interesting because in chapter 12, very quickly, we're going to get into some of the spiritual gifts. So that's going to be interesting that, that he talks about this as well. He's talking about this incredible plan of God and the fact that we have been saved. And because we have been saved, we have been saved to something. That is to eternal life, of course, but we have been saved to a calling to a mission, to something that, that God has called us to do, and he, he equips us through the spiritual gifts. We'll get into that later. 
But he says, because I have what, what I've just told you, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, or the, the New King James says, I beseech you. I'm glad we don't really use that word much anymore. It's, it's a, it, it really kind of sticks more to the older King James. But uh, he is essentially urging. Christian Standard Bible says that. NIV says that. New American Standard says that. Uh, he is pleading. New Living Translation said. He is appealing. The ESV says that. I didn't, I didn't forget you, Cindy. But anyway, um, so you have this incredible emotional desire to see God's people respond to that which he is about to tell us. And he's saying, I am pleading with you. Beseech really implies this idea of begging. And, uh, but it, it really refers more to this idea of, of, of a, this encouragement. It's an encouragement. And the grammatical structure of the word that's translated beseech in the New King James or urge uh, in New American Standard or whatever, what, take your pick. Uh, the way this word is constructed grammatically, now this fascinates me. I would have thought it was, would have been in the imperative mood. What's an imperative? It's a command. It's a command. It's not in the imperative. That struck me. So let me interject a thought that I'm hopefully going to be able to remember to tie up at the end. Is this optional? Is what we were about, some of you are shaking your head no. It's not an imperative. I'll just leave it at that. Let's continue, okay? Hopefully I'll tie this up. What is interesting about this, it is, uh, it is the active indicative. So what, right? The indicative in the Greek refers to something that is very real, something that is very genuine. And in the active voice, it is the subject who is the one who is doing the beseeching. That is, Paul is doing the beseeching. So in this grammatical structure, what it's telling us is that Paul is actively telling us something that is very real, it is very important, it is something that he's going to continue to bring again and again to the forefront of his teaching. It is something that we need to consider as Christians to again bring to the forefront of our Christian lives. Well, let me unpack that even a little bit more. This is not a one and done scenario. This is not something that you do once, okay, and, and okay, now I've, 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 I've uh, presented myself as a living sacrifice to God. I've done that. This is something that you continue to keep doing. And it's, it's parallel to the concept of what Jesus talked about in Luke chapter 9, Luke chapter 14, of denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following Jesus. But he is, he, is, he is beseeching or begging is not too far off the mark, by the way. But he is urging us based on God's mercy. 
Actually, in Romans 15.30, the same Greek word is used, and the word is translated into the New King James as beg. So beg is definitely not too far off the mark. Do you, do you sense the, the sense? Do you sense the sense? Do you sense Paul's desire? Do you sense the Holy Spirit's desire in saying, get a hold of this? Understand this. And I, he, he is, in light of what God has done for you, in light of his mercy toward you, listen to what I'm about to say, what, what Paul is really saying here. And he, he is, he is uh, he's begging in light of God's mercy. I've found that to be fascinating as well. Because this word mercy, Greek word is octermos, which I'm probably mispronouncing, but unless you've done some study on Greek, you're probably not going to. Anyway, I told it myself. But, but it's an interesting word because it's, it's an actual display of concern over another's misfortune, or it is a display of concern a display of pity, a display of mercy, a display of compassion one has for another. Now, what's fascinating about this particular Greek word, because I did some digging on it, it is used in the Septuagint. Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It is used in the Septuagint to translate it from the Hebrew into the Greek, it is used for the word that is often translated into English, New King James at least, loving kindness. It's also translated mercy, but it can be translated loving kindness. It is that Hebrew word, hased, H-E-S-E-D, if you want to write it down, or you can put a C in front of it, depending on, anyway, and I'm not, it, it's, it's this interesting word in the, in the, in the um, Hebrew, because it, this word hased talks about this idea of yearning towards something, longing for something. It actually can mean to be merciful and to be compassionate. But remember, I've talked to you about this particular word before because it, it's, it's a descriptive word that talks about God's intense love that pursues, that doesn't let go, that continues to pursue, that is always there. It is not a love that you can shut out. It is not a love that you can block out. It is not a love that you can tune out. It, it, it is this, this, this love that God has for his people that is in constant pursuit of us. And Paul uses the same word that's translated for that concept in the Greek Old Testament. He uses the same word to say, in light of God's incredible love for you, in light of his incredible pursuit of you, Present yourselves as a living sacrifice. 
in light of God's incredible mercy. Now, and, and so, we're told to present ourselves as a living sacrifice in light of God's mercy. Now, as I think about this, and I think there's a relationship between understanding God's mercies and our capacity, our ability to present ourselves as a living sacrifice. I, I think the more we understand God's incredible mercy for us, the more that we have the capability to present ourselves as a living sacrifice to him. That's why I said this is something that is not a one-and-done scenario, that this is something that we, I think, are called to do every day. And, and it, it, what I'm finding more prevalent in, in just my, my own devotional life is just how merciful, just how gracious, just how patient, just how long-suffering God truly is with all of us. I know he is with me. And how do I, how do I say this? And I, I don't think he expects anything else from you other than what you are able to give. You ever think about that? Now, there are times that it's like, we feel like, well, I don't feel like I gave God enough. Maybe that's the Spirit of God calling you to give more of yourself to him. Think back when you first got saved. Think, some of you, think back about what you were like the day before you got saved. Did he take you at your word? Sure he did. You were willing to present yourself as a living sacrifice. Problem with a living sacrifice, of course, is it want to keep sneaking off the altar, right? And I think I think we understood the mercy of God to some degree. We've done a whole lot of bad thing, things, and God is willing to forgive us, right? But, but I really don't think we really understand the mercy of God until we really begin to understand our own depravity. Which is something that I think you talk about to God in private. But it, I think if we really get a handle of just how depraved and just how sinful we really are, that we then begin to really understand the mercy of God. I didn't, I didn't think of it until just now, but I, Jesus talks about the two, the two prayers. You have the Pharisee that, that prayed to God, and he lifted up his eyes to heaven, and he said, God, I thank you that I'm not like that sinner over there, that tax collector. 
that tax collector who probably cusses and drinks and smokes and does all kinds of stuff that I don't like. Plus, he's collecting money and giving them to the Romans. And I'm glad that you have not made me like that. And the tax collector, Jesus said, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat on his chest, which is an incredible expression uh, of, of, of sorrow and, and regret and, and destitute. Dest What's the word I want to use? He was destitute. There we go. Okay. And he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus said that was the man who went away justified. And I, and, and I, you know, Martin Luther, he, he interesting guy, right? It, incredible stuff, wrote some incredible stuff toward the end of his life and wrote some incredibly bad stuff. I think he just drank too much beer, to be honest with you, but that's just my thought, all right? But, He got in touch with his own depravity. But then he felt that he had to earn God's favor. And he would do stupid things like whip himself with a, with a whip and, and, and crawl across broken glass and, 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 and things that, that they don't gain your favor with God. In other words, I bring up Martin Luther because what I'm saying is that for us to get in touch with our own depravity is not for the purpose of making us try to work harder to gain God's favor. It is for the purpose of us understanding his incredible mercy that is new to us every morning. It tells us in the book of Lamentations. And it's, and it, it's, it's for us to fully understand the incredible depth of his mercy toward us. And his grace toward us. We sang it just a little while ago. His, his grace is enough for us. And, and when I really begin to understand God's level of mercy and love, that said that can't turn it away love, and his incredible grace toward me, it makes it a whole lot easier for me to desire to present myself as a living sacrifice to him as an act of worship. Not as an act of trying to make God like me better. Does God love you? Does God love you? Do you feel like God loves you? I've talked to people who say, I'm not so sure. I've talked to pastors who've told me that. And just to understand his incredible mercy so that we can respond out of an act of love and worship and praise and just this desire to be with him. It's not an imperative. It might be optional. But when we really begin to understand who God is and how much he loves us, the option really has been taken away. Because the reality is he wants us to come to him 
not because we feel obligated or we have the living hell scared out of us, if I can be so blunt. But he wants us to come to him with a response from his great love to us and a heart of love to him. Does that make sense? So we present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Before I get into that, Psalm, 120, Psalm 25, verse 6, it says, Remember, O Lord, your tender mercies and your loving kindness, for they are from old. They are from old. That's the New King James. In the Septuagint, that same verse says, Remember your compassions and your mercies because they are from eternity. That word eternity, I've shared this with you before, is the Hebrew word olam. The Hebrew word olam can't, it is, is the, the Hebrew language is very descriptive. It has, it, it builds pictures for you. And, and the word olam means beyond the vanishing point. That is when, like when you go out on a flat plane and, and you look and, and you look as far as you can, and you almost can identify this place I can see here, but no more. Beyond that is what's called the vanishing point in your eyesight. And this, this idea of, of God's mercies, God's compassion, God's loving kindness toward you has been given to you from eternity, from beyond the vanishing point, from beyond our ability to comprehend that's what it's really saying. Because what's beyond where I can see? Where is my vanishing point as I look across the plane? What is beyond what I can, where I can see? I don't know. I can't see it, right? What is beyond my understanding of God's mercy? What's beyond your understanding of God's mercy? Is there more mercy? Or is your understanding of God's mercy so complete that if you exceed that, then all of a sudden you, you end up having to deal with the grumpy old God that some of us still have in the back of our heads? See, his mercy, his compassion, his love is beyond the vanishing point. It's beyond our comprehension. It is something that we have. And, and, and so when I think about this, it's an invitation. It is something that we have been invited in to explore and to understand and to allow God to reveal more and more and more of himself to us. And in seeing that more and more, it is easier for me to present my body as a living sacrifice. Because I'll tell you this, there are times that I really don't want to. I know that I'm alone here, right? Especially when you get angry. The interesting thing about this word present 
is a technical term in the Greek. It is a technical term that's used in secular Greek for when someone would come and offer an offering to a false god. Whatever that might be. Now, Paul is using somewhat of the, he's actually using both Greek and Hebrew concepts here, this idea of sacrifice. But it's, this is a, a technical term where it refers to offering the sacrifice. And it says that you present your bodies. The Greek word here is the Greek word soma. The, and it, it's, it's translated a number of different ways from Greek into English. But it refers to both your physical and your, immater- your immaterial self or your non-physical self, your spiritual self. And, and see, that's the thing is it, in, that, I, that I see with Christians is, is that we, we, we usually do a pretty good job. I'm going to get to use one of my favorite sayings in a second. We, we usually do a pretty good job of presenting the physical part. You know, we don't, we, don't, we don't smoke or cuss or dance or chew or go with girls who do, right? That kind of a thing. We don't do it too often. I saw a picture. It says, I love Jesus, but I drink, but just a little. But anyway, I thought it was pretty funny. The thing is, is that we clean up the externals and we hang our hat on now we, live, we think we live, in a, we live a holy existence. We read it in Psalm 51 this morning, didn't we? The sacrifices of God are a broken and a contrite heart. Those are the sacrifices that God will not despise. what's taking place on the inside when we present our body, our soma, all who we are physically and spiritually, when we present ourselves as a living sacrifice. Interesting thing, too, about this word soma, in Colossians 2.17, it says, which are the shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. That word substance is the word soma. So have you, have you come to the place where you can present your substance as a living sacrifice to God? This word living, a sacrifice that lives, it's in the present tense. The present tense in the Greek is an action that is in the state of being with no assessment of its completion. It's something that is happening over and over, if you will. It's talking about something that is happening continuously, not something that began and, now, then, it, and then it was in the process and then it ended. It's something that stays in the process. And, and so we're to be this living sacrifice living for God because of his incredible mercy. And you know, the thing is, and, and this is coming out of my head a few times already as, as I'm speaking, is, is that I'm convinced 
I'm convinced that we're, if we are at the place that we can only give God just a little bit more of us, that he'll take it. I really am. Now, he may invite you to give even more. He may invite you to present even more, but, but he, he will take. He will take what we present to him. He will cherish what we present to him. It becomes the form of worship, that presentation of ourselves as a living sacrifice. He'll take whatever you give him. And, and again, the, the thing about giving him as much as of us as we possibly can, and, and, and I've taught this, I've heard this, because that's where the abundant life is. And yes, it is. But how do we define the abundant life? How did the early church define the abundant life? You know what the early church held as the pinnacle of Christian existence? Martyrdom. They saw the pinnacle of their existence to be put to death for their faith. Wow. That really does put things into perspective, doesn't it? Because we think abundant life, let's just say very differently than that. Because we, we preach, we pre pastors are guilty at times of preaching a spiritual optimism. But what is optimistic about a calling on our lives? Again, going back to Luke 9, to take up your cross daily, deny yourself. What is optimistic about being a sacrifice? What is optimistic about being, having our lives hidden, unnoticed, unimportant? Our lives hidden in Christ, as Paul told the Colossians. See, we pursue a whole lot of things that I think are going to eventually become wood, hay, and stubble. Because sacrifice is not easy. It's not. And, and again, this, this is rooted in, in the Old Testament sacrificial system. You had to get a lamb or a bull. Or if you're really poor, two turtle doves, but they had to be without blemish. They had to be without spot. You couldn't just get the bad lamb of the flock and nail well, We'll give that one to God, right? You heard the story about the, two far the farmer who had two cows, and, and the one cow had uh, two babies, had two calves, and so the farmer was so happy that he had two calves that he, that he told his wife, we're going to give one to the Lord. And she kept nagging him, well, which one's the Lord's? And he goes, I don't know, we'll, we'll, we'll get around to that. Well, unfortunately, a day came where the farmer came in the house and his wife was in the living room and he was all sad and dejected he says I got such bad news for you honey the Lord's calf just died you know but I think sometimes that's how we present 
And I think that God has so much more for you when you present yourself as a living sacrifice in all the fullness that you are capable of. And it doesn't mean that you're going to have a nicer house or a nicer car or you're going to have better business or whatever the case may be. But, but it, 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 it means that you have taken one step closer to God and when you draw near to God, he draws near to you. And it means that you have a, a more intimate, closer communion with him. And that's the kind of stuff that money can't buy. Sacrifice isn't fun. It's difficult. And I, I think at, at times we, we, we sacrifice, we're, we're called to sacrifice um, even our self-determination, our self-interest. And I, I'm not here to point those things out to you other than just kind of bring a general light to it. God is the one who gives you the specifics of that which you are to lay down on his altar. I'm not. And I've been in plenty of churches where they wanted to identify that for you. But one thing I will say is that, that in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5, it says to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Take every thought captive. Now, you think about your day, and does that always apply to your day, in day in and day out? I, I, to me, I thought about that verse, and I thought about that concept, and I thought, boy, this is challenging, be, because we, we all like to indulge somewhere, don't we? And it may be, it may not be necessarily bad indulgement. It's not what I'm getting at. but it may not be something that's beneficial to you. That something that actually would build you up and something that would increase your capacity to know, to understand, and to experience God. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Wholly acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. The, uh, the New King James says, which is your reasonable service. But the thing is, is that we've been called to do it in such a way that it's acceptable. I don't know if acceptable is really a good word in the English being translated from the Greek because the Greek word really means well-pleasing. The Greek word means well-pleasing. In fact, I'm not even going to finish this verse. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop there on this. Let me talk about this a minute and then we'll be done. We'll get back into this next week. Um, is your life well-pleasing to God? 
Do you ever have those moments that you're thinking, I hope he's not looking? Of course we do, each and every one of us. But if we truly understand the depth of our depravity, which was met by the depths of his mercy, we really get a hold of that concept. And I think that's a very individual thing. It creates in us a desire to please him. And what I have learned, even in my desire to please God, just be flat out honest with you on this, guys. No, I have. Anyway, I've learned that even my desire to please him has to be a sanctifying work in my life. It is not something that comes naturally. It is something that only happens when I am willing to present my body as a living sacrifice. Because of my depravity, because of his great mercy, and because of his great love, then that motivates me, that changes me to want to please him. Something I can't fabricate. It's something that I can't make up. It is something that God has had to grow me into. Does that make sense? So don't feel guilty if your capacity to please him isn't all that high. Ask him to deepen it. Ask him to strengthen it. Spend time with him. Just simply allow the Spirit of God to speak to you about his great mercies that are new to you and me and us, including the puppy, every morning. Amen.